All right, uh, so I think many of you guys have already been in our First Corinthians series. If not, uh, welcome. We've been going through First Corinthians for the past uh, month or so. And I just want to you know, be honest here. Um, I just want to tell you guys that it's kind of been kicking my butt. And so um, I don't know if it has been for you guys, but it has been for me. Um, and so if you guys have your Bibles, I invite you guys all again to open your Bibles to First Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 10 to 17. First Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 10 to 17. And this is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Christus and Gaius, so that none of, no one may say that you, have, that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Uh, you know, one of, uh, one of my favorite movies is uh, Remember the Titans. And, um, and I know many of you guys have already seen it. I think you guys are all very familiar with it. If you have not seen it, what is wrong with you guys? Just saying, there's nothing wrong with you guys. Uh, but for, for those who haven't seen Remember the Titans, um, it is a movie loosely based on the true story of a, of a desegregated uh, Virginia um, high school football team. And it explores the relationships between uh, blacks and whites on the same team. And uh, if, if you've seen the movie, uh, the pivotal point of the movie occurs when the team goes on a two-week-long um, camp together. And aware that their differences are tearing the team apart, uh, Denzel Washington's character, Coach Boone, uh, takes them on a run to visit the Gettysburg Cemetery in the middle of the night. And uh, it's, an, it's actually really an iconic moment. And, and Coach Boone uh, decides to give this team of uh, black and white people a, a history lesson. And as they stood near the tombs of dead men who fought and died in, a, in the Battle of Gettysburg, um, he calls them to, to listen to their souls. And he says to them, if we don't come together right now on this hollowed ground, we too will be destroyed just like they were. I don't care if you don't like each other or not, but you will respect each other. And, uh, you know, as I'm kind of you know, watching this scene, I'm, all, I'm like all weeping. Um, but the reason why it was a turning point was because this team uh, had realized that they had allowed their disagreements and their differences to tear each other apart. And this is what's at stake in this high school group. Two weeks ago, we found out that uh, even in the midst of the bad, Paul still looked for the good and the evidences of the Spirit of God working in the Corinthians' lives. But beginning with the passage that we just read, Paul begins to address the problems that the, that the Corinthians were notori notorious for. First Corinthians is a picture of what happens when Christians have gone wild. And it depicts a greater problem of what life looks like when your life is not centered on Jesus the Messiah. And as I had mentioned in my previous message, the church of Corinth was known more for their problems than for their piety. And so beginning with the passage that we just read, and over the course of four chapters, Paul is going to be addressing one of the main problems that had been occurring in the Christian community. The problem of divisions and differences. And for Paul, the, the, the problem isn't that differences don't exist or matter. Paul knows that there are real differences among people. Like, it's not fake news. 
But what Paul saw as incompatible for a people whom God saved together was that these same people allowed their disagreements and differences to destroy the very thing that God had created, their unity. And we'll talk more about this in just a second, but the word that Paul uses for divisions in verse 10 is the Greek word schismata. It's where we get the word schism from. But even even the English word schism doesn't carry the force that Paul had intended. What he is saying is that these divisions are literally tearing the church apart, as if you are pulling apart a limb or an arm or a foot off of a body. We are allowing our differences to kill the church. What kind of differences did the Corinthians divide over? Well, what's interesting is not that people were literally killing each other. Well, I guess that's... I'm glad that that they weren't. But people weren't fighting. Uh, Their differences weren't even theological. Their differences were far more mundane and far more insidious. The Corinthian church had allowed popularity contests, relational rivalries, personal preferences dominate and destroy the unity of the church. And I don't think I need to convince you what Paul says to the Corinthians and that he also says it to us. I don't think I need to convince you of that. So many of us will choose who to hang out with because we know that hanging out with these individuals will either elevate our social clout. So many of us will choose to hang out with certain people because they dress like us or talk like us. So many of us will choose to hang out with certain people because we feel comfortable around them and we feel like we can actually be ourselves. And to a certain extent, I I think many of these things are fine things. But the problem is that we have allowed those differences and personal preferences to destroy each other. Notice, but notice that Paul's remedy in this passage isn't to be more diverse. If you take a look at this passage, unity is actually not achieved through diversity here. And that might surprise some of you. What will erode and destroy this high school group isn't a, a lack in racial or emotional or preferential or even relational diversity, but a lack in a Jesus-shaped love for one another. The problem isn't isn't that there were differences in the church. The problem is always how they handle them. The solution is not diversity. It is love. Always. Paul's call for Christians is not to be diverse, but to be loving. A love that is ultimately demonstrated in what Jesus the Messiah has done for sinners who came not to be served, but but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The disunity occurring in the church was simply born out of an unwillingness to let the story of Jesus fully reshape their lives, their values, their differences, their desires and preferences. Divisions happened because they allowed themselves to be centered on the differences themselves, rather than Jesus who reconciles all things together, whether things in heaven or things on earth. And so the key idea for this evening's message is that divisions happen when the family of God has lost their relationship, has, has lost sight of their relationship, their Messiah, and their purpose. The first point is that divisions happen when the family of God has lost sight of their relationship. Take a look at verse 10 again. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. You know, it's easy to gloss over the kind of appeal that Paul is making. Like, okay, cool, I get it, Uh, I want you guys to be united. But there is a subtlety to the words that Paul is using here. Paul could have used any other word for appeal. 
you know, as an apostle and messenger of Jesus, he could have used his status to easily command their obedience. And as a pastor, I can easily command you to fold up, you know, the chairs or to fold up uh, my laundry or to, you know, perhaps wash my dishes. Uh, but whether you want to or not is a completely different thing. Which is why, I, if I really wanted you to do something, I would just go another route. Uh, just kidding. But instead of appealing to his authority, Paul takes another route. He appeals to his relationship with them and their relationship with each other. He calls them a Delphoi, which is more accurately translated brothers and sisters. Why does this matter? Well, it's because Paul cared more about them as his family than he did about getting their obedience or even their agreement. Obedience and unity are important, but nothing was more important to Paul than their relationships with one another. Before Paul addresses the conflict and the divisiveness, he leaves no doubt about his love for them and shows that their relationship is in no way dependent upon their performance. Paul is modeling how to handle disagreements and differences in love. And the first thing that he does is he points to their relationship as the redeemed family of God. I am appealing to you precisely because you are my family and you are family with one another. And he makes this appeal of a relationship before he corrects them. Paul sets the tone of disagreement in the context of relationship. And so before he challenges them, he tells them that, they, that before we address disagreement and differences and divisiveness, let's remember our relationship. We are family. Paul is not talking about the non-Christian community. He is talking exclusively about the Christian community. The people that come to this high school group on, a Friday, on Friday nights at 7.30 p.m. The people that come to this building on Sunday mornings and evenings. If you are a Christian, if you have placed your faith and hope in Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God who has died for your sins, you are part of his royal family. And you know, I think a lot of Christians, like it, I think it shocks people, like a lot of Christians are surprised that divisions happen in the church. Like I think a lot of us think that when God saves a people, like all of their problems and differences, like for some reason simply just go away. Like the church is a utopian society and there are no disagreements and all differences are flattened. But one thing that we tend to forget is that the church, no less this high school group right here, is comprised of all, comprised of all sorts of people saved and brought together by the grace and peace of God. If you really think about it, if you really think about it, there's actually really no natural reason for all of us associating with each other. Like, I mean, what's a bunch of, like, you know, 20-somethings, you know, hanging out with a bunch of teenagers? Or maybe 40-somethings. I got you. One second. <laughs> what's a bunch of, you know, people like us hanging out with a bunch of teenagers? A few months ago, a couple of the staff at a staff meeting were sharing how they have trouble consciously remembering the youth during the week. And I thought to myself, hey, don't worry. The youth actually have no trouble at all forgetting you during the week. <laughs> Church is weird in that God puts a bunch of random people together who have no natural reason for being together. Let me ask you another question. What are a bunch of teenagers from a different bunch of different schools and different backgrounds gathering together? I mean, if it weren't for your parents, none of you guys would know each other. The very fact that school rivalries exist is to demonstrate the difference between us and them. And so a ragtag group of people like our high school group exists to show what Jesus the Messiah has done on the cross. God has so transformed a people of different biological, ethnic, cultural, and social backgrounds 
and in such a way that they are brought together in a common family, together, with ties that run deeper than biological flesh and blood. Which means that God's family has very little to do with mutual compatibility. Similarities in where we go to school, what, what sports teams we play on, and what we watch on Netflix, how long we've grown up at this church, how we spend our time, what interests we have, what colleges that we want to go to, can bring us together. But they can never be the basis for our community with one another. The criteria for community is no longer, or no longer, has to be on the basis of similar interests, because our community is ultimately grounded in God. The mystery of God's family is precisely that it embraces all people, whatever their individual differences may be, and allows them to live together as brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the living God. And this was revolutionary. If you'll remember, Corinth was one of the largest melting pot colonies in the Mediterranean world. Paul is obviously aware of wide-ranging social classes, different ethnic backgrounds, diverse walks of life, and vast cultural practices. So, of course, the church will be filled with people with different likes and dislikes, different interests and disinterests, different hobbies and tastes. And I think a lot of us wonder, why, God? Like, why does it have to be like this? Why can't everyone just be like me? And I love this quote by author Henry Nowen. He writes, Community, I really love this quote, Community is the place where the person you least want to live with always lives. I love that. Part of, and I, I think part of God's purpose is to teach us that our love for one another must transcend our disagreements and our differences. Petty or important, trivial or serious, theological or not. You see, weak and immature love insists that we can be united only when we have complete agreement with each other. But mature love learns to agree to disagree because it knows that disagreements and differences do not have to divide. There will be times where you will have to draw the line, and there will also be times when it is good, necessary, and appropriate to correct people, just as Paul is doing right now. But, for, but what Paul shows us is you do not correct someone that you do not have love for. Addressing differences must always be done in the context of family, relationship, and love. Now, I think there are some of you who are on the other side of privilege. Maybe for some of you, you're newer to the high school group. Maybe you're not as close to the people who have grown up going to this church. Maybe you have nothing in common with these other people. Maybe you're the other one out. And maybe you've come to the point where you realize, you know what, this, this kind of sucks. Like, I keep trying. I keep pursuing other people. I keep trying to make small talk, but it's hard getting to know people better, and they never respond and reciprocate. And maybe for some of you, you're just on the verge of, of giving up. And this is where the rest of the high school really needs to grow up and be less self-absorbed. Because we're family. But to the person who is discouraged by division and differences, I just want to tell you, I'm sorry that you feel this way. And I'm going to be honest with you, that is really lame. That does suck. But what I also want to encourage you is that the failures and even divisiveness of other people do not determine your faithfulness in love to Jesus and others. 
I want you guys to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15. And as you turn there, the very fact that 2 Corinthians exists means that Paul's first letter went in one ear and not the other. By the time Paul writes 2 Corinthians, he's writing with his heart on his sleeve. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 15. He says in verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? And the answer to Paul's rhetorical question here is actually yes. As he does actually love them more, he is actually getting love love less. What that means is that Paul is pouring out his time. He's giving his energy. He is pouring out his tears and his his efforts to this community, and they just don't get it. And he's not getting anything in return. And so maybe you've texted people, maybe you have initiated not just once, and not just twice, but maybe 15 times, and you've put yourself out there. But the story of Jesus shows us that our love for others does not have to be dependent on the performance of other people. Because loving others when people are at their worst is a lot like being loved by God. Is it not? When you get tired of trying or making an effort, you still have not yet given up all your rights and privileges, all of your own preferences and desires, including your own life, in order to make unity happen. You did not do that. Jesus did. And he did that for you. Do not be wary of doing good, even when others are lame. For real. Do not be wary of doing good, even when others are lame. Any division that occurs in this high school group arises not out of personal differences or different hobbies or interests. It arises out of a forgetfulness of who God created the church to be. A royal family of God. Second point. Divisions happen when the family of God has lost sight of their Messiah. Take a look at verse 11, back in 1 Corinthians chapter ten, uh, chapter 1. Look at verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Now, we don't have too much information about, the, about who Chloe and her people were. Paul seemed to know them, but what's more important isn't who they were, but what they were saying. And what they were saying was that the Corinthian church had formed popularity groups within the gathering of God's people. Like, that's crazy. Can you, you know, can you imagine one group of high schoolers, you know, crowding together in a clique, and, you know, maybe another group of high schoolers crowding together in a clique, and maybe another group of staff crowding together in a clique? You know, of course not. That would never happen at Lighthouse. It would never happen in this youth group under my nose. And in case you didn't catch my sarcasm, of course it does. It still happens in our youth group. A simple scan of who hangs out with who before musical worship and who hangs out with who after small groups will suffice. Now, the problem isn't that we gravitate towards certain people. That's not the problem. With a group our size, you can't be friends with anyone because at a certain point you have to wonder how deep you can go and how superficial you have to be. And as I mentioned earlier, the solution to unity isn't more diversity but love. But I suspect that our natural impulse is to gravitate towards certain people to the exclusion and isolation of other people. And brothers and sisters, that is not loving. And I've seen it in this high school group. That was happening. That was what was happening in this Christian church. Take a look at verse 12. What I mean is that what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. 
or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Paul didn't even know that there was a Paul groupie. And I'm pretty sure Apollos, a gifted communicator and leader in the Corinthian church, did not encourage them to create a faction in his name. Cephas or Cephas or the Apostle Peter wasn't even a leader in the Corinthian church. So how they even know him, I have no idea. But what's really crazy and really ridiculous is that they just used his status as an apostle to brand themselves. And they just used Jesus as a status to exclude others. Like, I've, I'm actually the one that follows Jesus, not you. That was something that Jesus hated and despised. Now, why would they do this? Well, virtually every commentator observes that the problems of division tearing the church apart were not, again, differences in theology, which is actually surprising because the early church was plagued by false teaching, but I digress. So the problems weren't theological, then what were they? Well, the problem is really just one. They have lost sight of their Messiah. How can division and differences destroy this high school group? The problem is simply one. We lose sight of our Messiah. And the question is, how? By centering on values consistent with the culture. By centering on values consistent with the culture. Why were people crowding themselves around celebrity leaders and individuals in the church? It's because for the Corinthian Christians, outward appearance, image, popularity, status, were everything. Because for the Corinthian culture, outward appearance, image, popularity, and status were everything. And what ended up happening was that this Corinthian church no longer saw themselves as family, but as rivals of one another. This was a church that had allowed the values of the culture to seep into the culture of their community. How about us? Let's ask a harder question. Why is it that the cliques in this high school group look so similar to the cliques in our high, school, in our high schools? How has our value system of what we think is important or valuable infiltrated our relationships in the church? And I think so many of us choose a friend group on the basis of whether or not they show interest in us or whether they like the things that, that we like or they match our intelligence or whether they're the same ethnicity or even different ethnicity or whether they're hanging around this group of people will propel us into a higher social caste. But if you take a look at the fruit of the Spirit, you will notice that reciprocity, or reciprocity, creativity, status, intellect, success, popularity, or influence don't make the cut. And yet this is what our culture hopes for in us. This is what, what, this is what colleges look for. This is what our parents hope for in us. This is what our friends hope for. This is what we hope for ourselves and in other people. Just to show you how little Paul cared about any of that, take a look at verses 13 to 16. <coughs> Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. And so we're talking about Paul the Apostle, you know, Paul the church planter, Paul 
you know, the author of 48% of the New Testament, and he can't remember who he really even baptized. In fact, Paul was glad that he didn't remember who. Why? Because what people are distinguished by and what the culture thinks about those distinctions were hardly things that Paul cared for. I mean, how can you? When God the king became God the servant. How can you, when Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality a thing, uh, equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ, the, the Messiah, the Son of God, is ultimately what defines God's community. Everything else, personal preferences, differing opinions, they're all secondary. There's nothing wrong with being cool or wanting to be influential or successful. And I think, you know, some of you are pretty cool. I must, I'll give you that. But there's something I want you to remember, high schooler. Cool, intellect, wittiness, it will get the attention of your peers and your friends. And kindness and humility usually will not. But kindness and humility is what will grab the attention of God. And so, high schooler, I want you to choose. Is this who you want to be? Now, I'm not usually an either-or kind of guy. I'm usually a why-not-both kind of person. But when it comes to the approval of other people or the approval of God, I hope it's no contest. I hope that if you had a choice between being someone who is successful or someone who is humble, the choice for you would be easy. You know, being successful, obviously. Just kidding. And again, none of these things are bad. But all of these things are secondary in importance as to what God desires for his spirit-filled people. People who are loving who are kind, who are humble, who are selfless, who are peaceable. Because in the cross of Jesus the Messiah, we find a reversal of values. Paul says this in the next chapter, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This means that we do not have to. That, this means that we do not evaluate community on the basis of status, but Messiah and Messiah crucified. Within the Christian community, within this high school group, real differences and preferences obviously exist. Like I know that those things exist. Whether you live in Carson or North Torrance or South Torrance or PV, that all makes a difference in some way. And there are obvious social and ethnic disparities. Whether you are white, whether you are Hispanic, whether you are Asian, whether you are mixed, obviously makes a difference. Whether you are male or female, clearly makes a difference. Real differences and preferences obviously exist, and Paul isn't encouraging us to abandon those differences. But what ultimately defines this community shouldn't even be our diversity, but the cross. It is the cross of Jesus that ultimately binds all of us together, despite our differences. Despite them. We are a cross-shaped family. 
And that's what cruciform means, by the way. Uh, by the way. But I'm, I'm sure that that probably means nothing to you because I'm sure that 99% of you did not read the sermon title on your handouts. But we are the cruciform, cross-shaped family of God. We die to our preferences. We die to our differences. We die to what we think is important or value. Not because they're not important, and not because Christ was crucified for your sins, not because I was crucified for your sins, not because the people in this church were crucified for your sins, not because your friends were crucified for your sins, but because Jesus was giving up all of his rights and privileges as God. All of his human desires and preferences, including his own life, to make you a part of his family. You can never go too far. It is when we lose sight of our Messiah that divisions arise. Third and finally, point number three, Divisions happen when the family of God loses sight of their mission. Actually, I think I wrote purpose, but actually should be mission. Sorry. I think for a lot of us, especially those who have grown up in a church, it's not hard to think that church is just one huge social gathering. You come here on Friday evening, and all your buddies are here, and maybe, just maybe, you'll bring you know, some of your non-Christian friends, and uh, you know, they'll, they'll hear the gospel, uh, there are snacks. There's literally a playground right behind us that even like some of you high schoolers still play at. Like you guys are high schoolers, come on. Uh, but we're all having a grand old time, and not that comfort is a bad thing. But I think our love of comfort is what has caused the church to slumber and to stay off course. Divisions happen when no one focuses on the purpose and mission of God, but because everyone else is squabbling over their stupid differences, stupid or not on what makes us comfortable and on personal preferences. But I want you to take a look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Remember, apostle means one sent on a mission. Paul was a man who got it, and he was following the call of God, and pushing the gospel forward. And that was what his life was about. And that was what the church must, must be about. Because that is what the kingdom of God is about. When a, group of, when a group like ours gets focused on its own differences and comfort. On its own needs and on its own pleasures. I don't know if I want to be around him or her. I don't know if I like this small group leader more. Or if I like this other small group leader. That is the beginning of the end, beloved. Last week I had, um, I had taken a call from a caller who uh, called the church office. And I kid you not, we get a ton of these calls all the time, and, uh, and they're asking if we provide vegan-free snacks for our children's ministry. And I was like, I'm sorry, no. And they just hung up. And in my sin, I was like, well, good riddance. We really don't want you at our church anyway. And, you know, I'm a pa- and I, I probably shouldn't be saying this because I'm a pastor. Um, but you know, I think that is a microcosm, okay? When, when vegan-free snacks are the deal breaker, when that song... Or that sermon or is, the, is the make it or break it. When the color of our walls, and as, you know, as, as bizarre as they are, <laughs> um, is when, when, they are, when that is the last straw, when that person who eats with their mouth open becomes the thorn in your side, that is the beginning of the end. I don't know if you realize this, but the church, the sacred gathering of God's holy people, is the only group of people in the world that do not exist for themselves. We exist for something far more expansive than our own lives. 
Because at the end of the day, we are not here for us, we are here for Jesus and the mission of God. And what matters most is not what happens here when I speak, and when all of your buddies are here, or when we're all getting along together, great, in small groups, even though that is great. What matters most is what happens when we live out the gospel together as we walk out those front doors right there. Unity is living out together what we believe together. Unity is living out together what we believe together. And I just want to, I want to give you guys some pointers in that. They're going to be really short because I'm running out of time. The first in pursuing unity is that as a cruciform family, we live in unity. We, we need to live in unity. As a group of different people, we still have our differences. But we know in Jesus, disagreements and differences do not have to divide. It means that we love each other and sometimes we agree to disagree. And I'm not even talking about compromise here. Make no mistake, Paul was no softy. Okay? He made no hesitation to correct people when their lives were out of step with the gospel. But what I love, but I love what Paul says in Ephesians where he says to bear with one another in love. And isn't that what a family is like? To, to bear with one another in love? So living in unity means that we make room for working things out without burning bridges with people. Second is that we mend, as a, as a cruciform family, we mend unity. We mend unity. In verse 10, the word for unity is actually better translated as mending or restoring back to how things originally were. A cruciform family will mend and reconcile what has been broken. And in fact, reconciliation was so important to Jesus that he said that if you are worshiping, like if you come to church on a Sunday or you come to church on a Friday and you have like conflicts with your family or with your siblings or someone, Jesus thought it was so important that you stop your worship. If you had wronged this individual, that you stop your worship, you leave this room and then you go reconcile with this other person before you come back here. That is how seriously Jesus took reconciliation. Third, as a cruciform family, we display unity. Some of Jesus' last words before he was crucified, and I've mentioned this, I've, I've had us look it over many times already, was a prayer for the future church to be one so that the world would know that Jesus was sent by God. And in the same gospel. Jesus says that by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Not just the people that are really easy to like, but especially the hard ones. Because by our unity or disunity, the world will know whether or not Jesus really is our reconciler. Fourth and finally, as a cruciform family, we long for unity. We long for it. Because in all of our best efforts to pursue unity, we also still long for its completion. Because complete unity will not be realized until heaven actually meets earth again. So we long and ache for it. In verse 3, Paul says grace and peace. Peace or shalom, as many of you know, carries a, a rich Jewish meaning of how things were always meant to be. And we saw only a glimpse of true shalom in the Garden of Eden, when heaven and earth was still joined together. When, when, when God walked with Adam and Eve, and it was a limited time when the web of relationships between God and man was not tainted by sin, and everything was as it, had, was as it, was, as it should have been. 
But not long after the creation, the webs unraveled as Adam and Eve sinned against God and against each other. And only four chapters into the Bible, four chapters into the Bible, Genesis 4, okay, we see the first murder. And when faced with a world in rebellion, God chose Abraham and his family to be the peacemaker between God and the rest of humanity. Abraham and his family would bring blessing to the whole world, but one by one, each king, each descendant of Abraham failed until one descendant didn't. And he would be called the Prince of Shalom, or Peace. He would bear their failures, the sins, the the prejudices, the, the guilt of all people who had broken their relationship with God and with one another, reconciling all things together in heaven and on earth, making peace through the blood of his cross. On the cross, God's justice was satisfied. And what God did, or what God should have done and was going to do to sinners, he did to Jesus. And what God was going to share with Jesus, he shared with sinners. It's the reason why Paul says that Jesus himself is our peace. So that anyone who believes on Jesus the Messiah has peace with God. And he's also the reason why people who have irreconcilable differences can come together in unity. Young and old. Male and female. Crabby and bubbly. Rich and poor can come together in such a way through Jesus that transcends all of those differences. It doesn't mean that the church is easy. But as our peacemaker, peace is here now. In Jesus, we are a new family. And while we see glimmers and flashes of shalom in the family, shalom will one day be fully experienced in the whole creation. The Messiah will will mend and restore all that was broken in the new heavens and new earth. This is what we long for. And this is the messianic story that God calls us to live out and share with others. Because our weekend gatherings on a Friday night and a Sunday morning That is not the point. They are the means to the end. And the end is that we are a people who live together on mission. We are called by God to make peace with one another. To long for the peace of the city. To seek the welfare of the city. To preach the gospel of peace to our schools and communities. To help the city. To share the goods with the city. To love and help the poor and the broken in the city. To stand up for truth in the city. We can't do that if the church today is still trying to figure out which friend to hang out with, which song we should sing, or which smoke leader we like the most. Like, all of that is petty stuff. There are people whose lives need saving. Unity in the church is living out together what we believe together. And it's not that we still won't poke fun at each other and squabble over these non-essential things or even essential things, because that's what a family just does. But at the end of the day, We know that these things are not what defines this family. It is the cross of the Messiah that brings us together so that we can live out together what we believe. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us to be who we already are. A people, a cruciform family, saved by your blood through the cross. God, we need your help to be a people, to be united because we've already been united. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.